0: We're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're looking at the end of chapter 4. You'll find this on page 1030 of the Pew Bible. We're going to start reading together in the second half of verse 6 and then read to the end of the chapter. So it's Revelation 4, verses 6b. 11. Hear the word of God. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Well, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter, John has been invited by the glorified Christ, To gaze into heaven through an open door. And the Lord indicated that he would show him things that must take place. These are things that are not possibly going to take place, but they are things that must take place. And as we noted last time, the things to be revealed now are of divine necessity. They've been decreed by the God whose purpose will stand. And John was so filled and equipped by the Holy Spirit that he is now able to see and hear such things that the rest of us couldn't even hope to behold. And in John's vision, we get an unparalleled revelation of the glory and the splendor of God himself. One of the greatest requests you'll remember that Moses ever made was to see the glory of the Lord. He was on the mount long after he had heard the voice of God speaking through the burning bush. We know that in Egypt, God had performed stunning miracles through Moses in the name of Yahweh. We know that he had watched as God divided the Red Sea and destroyed the entire Egyptian army. But having ascended the Mount Mount Sinai, he now asked the Lord, please show me your glory. And in response, God said to him, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Because the sight of God's face would overpower all the faculties of a mere mortal man. Like other sinners, Moses was unworthy to see the triune God in his holiness. Because to see him in his pure essence would be impossible for fallen creatures. And yet, through an open door, standing open in heaven, John sees a vision of the Almighty. God is not revealed directly, but he's revealed by his impact upon those who surround him. And while in the spirit, John is able to see the Lord encircled by the worshiping host. It is an affirmation of the great truths of God's infinite glory and his absolute sovereignty. Seated in splendor, God controls the universe, he governs the destinies of all his creatures. He rules without competition or contradiction or concession. And what John saw was a representation of what David was inspired to write, The Lord reigns, is robed in majesty. And oh, how vitally important this would have been for a small, oppressed, struggling Christian church. The churches in Asia were small, vulnerable. Seemingly insignificant before the mighty empire of Rome. The forces of evil, the powers of darkness appeared to be insurmountable. And yet God is on his throne. Every detail of human life has been carefully ordained. And no suffering Christian is forgotten by the sovereign God who sits upon his throne. He is almighty God who is worthy of the most reverential and awe-filled worship. And so we look at the vision and we discover that the throne is surrounded by 24 elders who are wearing garments of holiness and crowns of victory. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles, they represent the unified church of both the Old Testament and the New Testament joining in God's worship. And the elders are mentioned first because they are of first importance among all of God's creatures, the church. And yet so infinitely less important are they than God that they constantly pay homage to him. And in profound humility, they worship the Lord with reverence and godly fear. And we're told by John that also around the throne on each side are four living creatures that are full of eyes. And these are magnificent creatures of beauty and strength and purity and knowledge. The majestic beings have six wings and they never cease to praise the Almighty. And they're equipped with eyes around and within so that they can see more clearly the majesty of the Creator. As Heinrich Bullinger said, they are ever on the alert to perceive the manifestations of divine glory. And there have been various interpretations of the four faces that are listed, some wildly allegorical others strictly literal. But it seems to me that these faces symbolize the whole created order of animate life, the nobility of the lion, the strength of the ox, the intelligence of the man, and the swiftness of the eagle, the fullness of life. They represent all that is noblest and strongest and wisest and swiftest in the natural order, And everything in the universe is created to glorify its maker, heaven and earth. So not only the church, but the whole world exists to magnify the name of the Lord. And the essential idea here is the unanimous praise of God. As David expressed it in Psalm 145, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. So everything is designed with the praise of God in view, from the greatest thing to the least. Listen to the exhortation of the psalmist who summons all creatures to worship in Psalm 148. Praise the Lord, sea creatures, deeps, fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind. Mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, livestock, creeping things, flying birds, kings, peoples, princes, rulers, young men, maidens, old men, and children. It is a solemn and earnest summons to all creatures to praise the Creator. And there should be little doubt that these creatures are the same as those that were seen in Ezekiel's vision centuries before, Ezekiel saw four creatures called living creatures with faces like a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And they were closely associated with the throne, studded with eyes, accompanied by a rainbow. And Ezekiel says, these were the living creatures, and I knew that they were cherubim, the highest order of angels. And they sing with the 24 elders As cherubim, they're high ranking angelic beings, and the doxology they continually sing is similar to that of the seraphim in Isaiah's vision. One calling to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the universal praise of God is ceaseless. They neither sleep nor do they rest. It's relentless because God transcends time and he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the sovereign one over history. And he alone is the Lord God Almighty. History tells us that when in 1743 Handel's Messiah for the first time was performed in London in the presence of King George II, The king rose from his seat when he heard the hallelujah chorus. And by rising with bowed head, he indicated that not he, but Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. Interestingly, later on, when Queen Victoria ascended the throne, she was advised not to do that, but she did. No one can rival the Lord, no one compares with the Almighty. Isaiah 45, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me, there is no God. And so in their song, the living creatures emphasize that the almighty God is thrice holy. And of course, as you know, as we've mentioned many times, repetition in scripture is a vivid way of stressing the importance of something. What thrice holy means is beyond the grasp of thought or the expression of words. The etymology of that word holy suggests that its central idea is separation from. To say that God is holy means at least that he is separated from all sin and corruption and defilement. Yet, of course, as you know, that a good definition should not be negative only. It should be positive in some respects. So perhaps some synonyms might be Sinlessness, righteousness, wholeness, purity. Holiness includes all of these, but it's more than that because our language is utterly inadequate. And the biblical view of holiness is developed in relation to God himself, who transcends definition. He is infinitely pure, absolutely righteous, entirely true, and morally excellent, so that Habakkuk says you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot even look at wrong. In other words, God has a subtle, unwavering opposition to sin. It is loathsome in his sight. Any sin, all sin, every kind of sin is wrong. It is an affront to his holiness Sproul is right when he says sin is cosmic treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. So in order to deliver sinners, God's beloved Son had to suffer under his infinite wrath. Nothing else, nothing short of the blood of the Son of God could atone for the wrong done to the infinite divine holiness. And therefore, as Isaiah 53 points out, he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities, burdened with our sins. Jesus became sin for us, an object of divine fury. And holiness, as you'll know, is perhaps the distinguishing trait of God. He is totally set apart. No other divine attribute is repeated by the angels three times for emphasis. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says that God is light, that he's true, that he's living, that he's glorious. But nowhere in scripture is any one of these other attributes repeated. Yet the living creatures never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Benjamin Warfield comments God's mercy is his treasure. God's grace are his riches. God's holiness is his crown. Each person is holy. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy. The whole object of the whole book, according to Bullinger, is of all that it records, is to establish the holiness of God, which is here at the very outset the first thing that is proclaimed. He is the exalted one, infinitely and absolutely sacred, set apart from all sin. And so the only appropriate response to divine holiness is reverence and awe. When confronted With it, we have a deep sense of our own unworthiness. Tell me which prophet ever caught a glimpse of God's holiness and did not tremble. In the presence of that infinite purity and his sinless splendor, we would feel utterly unfit, like Isaiah, who said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. And even in the structure of the Old Testament temple, it's designed to teach us about the holiness of God, isn't it? The outermost court, no further was where the Gentile proselytes could gather. I may have mentioned this before, but there was an inscription right there. No Gentile may enter beyond the dividing wall Into the court around the holy place, whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And of course, you know, the Apostle Paul was falsely accused of taking Gentile converts into the forbidden zone. The court of the women, the court of the Jews, that of the priests and the holy place, and at the very heart, the holy of holies. Into the most holy place only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, so that not even the high priest could come before the holy presence of God without blood. And as a Christian, you have access into the inner sanctum. You have access into the most holy place. It's open to you anytime, but especially when we assemble for worship. What we do here on the Lord's Day is far more than meets the unbelieving eye. Because in describing our worship, the Apostle says that we've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And yet, modern evangelical worship, I am saddened to say, is seeped in flippant sentimentality. The beings in heaven worship God for both who he is and what he's done. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And the song they sing gives glory and honor and thanksgiving to the creator. With reverent modesty they sing the song of creation, God is the reason we exist. Eminently worthy is the eternal creator, described twice as the one who lives forever and ever. And in the ancient world, casting a crown is a sign of complete and utter submission. When one king would surrender to another, he would cast his crown at the victor's feet The 24 elders represent the church gladly yielding herself to the living God. He holds first place, or should, in her affections and the top spot in the cosmos. Everything exists by his will. Everything exists for his pleasure because in him we live and move and have our being. And so he's praised for his majesty on the throne for his eternity, because he lives forever, and for his holiness, because he is thrice holy. And he's worshipped by the church, he redeemed, and he's worshipped by the world he created. So as we look at this text, which is absolutely staggering, at the very least, what it teaches us is something about the nature of true worship. I hope you see that. It answers the question... What characterizes the worship of those who dwell in His infinite and holy presence? It's God centered, it's God focused, it's God glorifying, and it's utterly reverent. The entire vision through that open door has a Godward concentration. Every gaze is fixed upon the Lord. All the delight that they experience flows from His throne. Just as a tear magnifies grief, as laughter magnifies humor, as a smile magnifies joy, so truly reverent worship magnifies our devotion to God. All the host of heaven experiences the deepest joy and the greatest of all pleasures as they sing his praise. And praise, as you know, is the only aspect of earthly worship which will continue. They do not focus on feelings. They do not focus on circumstances. They do not focus on one another. Their focus is on God. The entire focus is upon the being and the works of God to whom worth is ascribed, and their worship is active and it's unceasing. There's no hint of sagging indifference. None of the heavenly beings, you'll note, is found slouching or in recline, or laid back on a couch, or a barca lounger. Everyone is at attention, keenly aware, actively alert, eagerly devoted. And it's a place of rest and reward, of course, but it's also not a place of idleness and inaction. It's great worship. Heaven is replete with reverence and awe. There's no pride. There's no self-boasting. No one behaves unbecomingly. Everyone worships with the deepest of humility. And no less than four times in Revelation do the 24 elders fall prostrate before the throne. Now, if the worship given by sinless cherubim and the glorified saints is reverent, what about ours? I'm led to believe by what little I know of what goes on out there on Sundays. I'm kind of occupied. But I am led to believe that many have lost the sense of God's thrice-holy nature. Have we shaped our idea of God to fit our tastes? Have we measured God by our intellects? If the holy angels humble themselves before his presence, what about us? Do you remember the third petition, as we discussed this morning, that Jesus taught his disciples? Your will be done on earth, how? As it is in heaven. Jesus assumed that God's will is the guide and measure of our wills on earth, and at no time is this more important than when we enter the sanctuary Solomon says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. My friends, worship is a solemn duty and a lofty privilege. It's not to be taken lightly. Fools are the ones who enter in carelessly, flippantly, with very little thought or preparation. Acceptable worship, as we're taught in Hebrews 12, is characterized by sincere reverence and awe. And so this remarkable text also teaches us and reminds us of the exalted privilege that is enjoyed by Christians. You see, under the old covenant, as we said, God's people could not approach with freedom and boldness like we can Only one man once a year could enter the most holy place, and he did so with trembling. No other Israelite could reach the inner sanctum or even try to and expect to live. On the high priest's robe were sewed bells so they could hear whether or not he was still alive in the holy place. But all that has changed because of Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We're told in Ephesians 3, in the Lord Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, so that God's holiness is not for us a source of terror, but a reason for worship. We may enter boldly and freely and joyfully and with complete confidence, and such bold access is one of the most distinguishing privileges of the new covenant. No old covenant saint would ever think of doing that. It sweetens our worship, and it animates our prayers. It strengthens our faith, and it assists us in our obedience. In Christ, that famous Aaronic blessing has found ultimate fulfillment. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was a glorious benediction, but no Jew expected to see God's face Yet God chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. When Moses asked to see God's glory, I don't think he fully understand what he was asking for. His request was denied to him then. But it'll one day be fulfilled. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What we will be has not yet appeared, and looks can be deceiving, can't they? When Jesus comes again, we'll look on him and all of his stunning holiness. Face to face, we'll behold him. Not at a distance, not by reflection, not through the ordinary means, We will see him as he is. No doubts, no confusion, no false perceptions. We will see him. And there is a link between seeing him and resembling him. To see him as he is means being transformed and it implies perfect enjoyment. And that will be our final reward. Perfect and full communion with the risen Jesus Christ. We will enjoy immortality as our bodies will share in his matchless glory. I think it's hard to imagine what it's like to behold the infinite majesty of the glorified Christ. God is eternal. The Son is incarnate. And he governs the affairs of the entire universe. And when we're tempted, like John, to fall at his feet as though we were dead, he'll lay his hand on us. His gentle, sovereign right hand. And he will say, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So may that encourage all of us who have been joined to Christ by faith to approach him with joy, gratitude, reverence and awe. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for so great a salvation and the privilege that we enjoy as New Covenant Christians to approach you with such boldness and yet with reverent, childlike faith. We're grateful for the Lord Jesus. We're grateful for what you revealed to John. And we are grateful that we've had the opportunity this evening to consider this amazing vision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.